Sorry. Okay, here we go. Are we ready? Let's start our time with prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and we give you thanks for this day, for this opportunity that we have to be together, centered on your word. And Lord, I just pray that your spirit would open our eyes so that we can behold wondrous things out of your word today. And I just ask um, for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I know we're in 1 Timothy chapter 4, but before we get into 1 Timothy 4, I would like us to turn in our Bibles to Revelation 21. (laughs) Revelation 21, all the way at the back. And we are going to read, starting in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Last week, we stood, like John did, at the summit of the mountain in our Bible study. Christy took us to the summit of the mountain, and we overlooked the spectacular view of what Scripture has been unfolding for us about the church. This is what Timothy is all about. It's describing for us what God is doing in building his church. And as we stood at the summit, we saw the church last week standing tall, radiant, and glorious. We saw that the church is God's household. She is God's work. She is being built together by God himself. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 tells us that, says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the Bible, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God's household is made up of all of those who are adopted into the family of God through their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And John 1, 9 through 12 tells us, But to all who did receive him, meaning Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this church, this beautiful bride of Christ, is God's household, made up of people who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. She is God's church. She is the church of the living God we saw The God who is alive, who is active, who is eternal, who is doing something in his church and through his church. When the members of God's household, the people of God, gather together for worship of their God, who is also their heavenly father, this gathering is the church of the living God. And we also saw last week that she is the pillar and buttress of truth, standing tall and strong on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, just like we saw in the book of Revelation. When the members of, 
sorry, the word of God. She is the pillar and the brush, buttress of truth against the onslaught of the constant battering of the enemies of God. What does it mean that she's the pillar of truth? The pillar of truth is her beautiful proclamation of the whole counsel of God's word throughout the ages, summed up in her confession in the mystery of godliness that we looked at last week, revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. God was made manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. She is also the buttress of truth, the walls of truth that are unbending fortresses that will not bend to the onslaught of culture, holding up the word of God as authoritative, refusing to turn to anything else, defending it, supporting it. We saw last week that some will leave the truth. The Spirit expressly said so. They would depart from the faith by devoting themselves to false truth claims, but not those who remain, those who remain, those who are a part of the church, remain by holding fast to the faith, by holding fast to the truth of God's word. And with this glorious vision of the church, the bride of Christ in our mind and in our hearts, we are going to descend the summit of this mountain into one church, And look at this one church, this one pastor that lived 2,000 years ago. This one church and this one pastor serve us as a blueprint for every church and every pastor that are being built together into this glorious vision that we see from this mountaintop. And as we study this letter that's written by Paul to Timothy and to the church he pastored, we are getting a glimpse into how Jesus is building his beautiful bride, one person at a time, one pastor at a time, one church at a time, throughout all time. As the church submits herself to Christ Jesus, her Savior, through her devotion to his word, Christ Jesus builds his church. In Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The church, the bride has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. She is being made holy, made righteous, made beautiful through the washing of his word so that she can be presented on that day that we saw a picture of in Revelation as blameless and spotless. The glorious vision of the church as a radiant bride comes through our submission to the word of God. And right now, specifically, what the letter to Timothy teaches us about the priorities of the church and the priority of the pastors and the priority of the people is the word of God. That's what our text is teaching us. It's the word priority of God's word to the pastors and to the people that purifies the church. Let's turn our attention to our text for this week. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 6. So the priority of the word of God in the life of a believer has twofold implications. The first implication that I see in the text is there's personal implication, a personal implication for Timothy, the pastor. He is called personally to be trained for godliness. And the second implication that I see is public, the public implication. The pastor is called to train his people in godliness as he is being trained. And both of these are through the word of God. Look at verse six with me. 
If you put these things before the brothers, and this can also be translated brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have, set, we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. If you... I want us to first take a look at who specifically is being addressed by Paul. It is if you, Paul directly, is directly speaking to Timothy as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. If you, Timothy, put these things before the brothers and sisters, the congregation of Christ followers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when we were in 1 Timothy 3, and we saw the portrait of a godly leader, we saw that the man that God has called to the office of overseer or elder is called to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a servant, he is not an autonomous agent who gets to run things according to his own ideas and his own will. He is a servant under authority. He is under the authority of someone higher than he, someone greater than he. He is a servant in God's household, and he is at the back and call of his authority. How he acts, his character, his behavior, what his job is, what he is called to prioritize, all come from his master, Jesus. And here in the text, he is being told what it takes to be a good servant. He will prioritize these two things. He will put these things before the brothers, and he will continuously be trained himself in the words of the faith and in the good doctrine that he's followed. But before we get into Timothy's personal training program, I want us to notice the brothers and sisters in the text. Even though these are directions that are specific to Timothy about his priorities in his position, the brothers and sisters are listening in on these directives. Remember, we know that this letter to Timothy is a personal letter, but it's not a private one. It's personal, but not private. And so they're listening in, hearing what it takes to be trained for godliness. They're hearing what the responsibilities of their pastor and elders are. And we, too, also are listening in on this personal conversation. And so the brothers and sisters, those all who are part of the family of God, the household of God, who've confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, are listening in in order to learn. We don't get to be off the hook. We don't get to look at this passage of Scripture and say, oh, that's just for Timothy, and we don't have to worry about it. If you are a member of the household of God, this is a passage for us as well today. Remember this, that as our leaders go, so go we. So we have the responsibility to look for leaders like we see in Scripture. We are called to look for leaders who have as their personal priority to be good servants of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be personally being trained for godliness. They should be passionate about this. And again, as our leaders go, so go we. Training for godliness is not just for our leaders. It is also for us, for the brothers and sisters as well. This, too, is our priority. So we are all, the whole church, is called to have as our priority 
training for godliness. So let's look at the training program together. Again, verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers and sisters, you will be good servants of Christ Jesus. Being trained, it's ongoing, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So what is the workout for training for godliness? It's being trained in the words of the faith. What are the words of the faith? They are the words of what we believe, what we confess with our mouth about the Lord Jesus. All that that implies, the mystery of godliness, are the words of the faith. We're to be trained in the good doctrine. Doctrine literally means the teaching. So being trained in the good teaching. Both of these, the words of the faith and the good teaching, the good doctrine, will come to us through the word of God, through the scriptures. So another way we could say this is that our pastors are to submit themselves to being trained in the scriptures, in the word of God, devoted to this. And then they're to be walking in the faith and the good doctrine. Notice that it says that you have followed the good faith and the good doctrine are just not intellectual knowledge. They are to be followed. And these trustworthy words, these words of the scripture, of the good faith and the good doctrine, these are words that stand in direct opposition to other kinds of words. Words like irreverent and silly myths. We've been talking about that all semester long. He says in verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Words that are myths and endless genealogies we talked about earlier, endless speculations that make shipwreck of people's faith. Words that the Spirit expressly said would lead people away from the faith. And I've said this before in weeks past, but so much of what we hear coming at us through our televisions or through our computers are these kinds of words. Myths, endless genealogies, speculations. Even speculations about how things are playing out in the world today. And it's not that they're bad things necessarily, but they can become bad things because they distract us away from the ultimate things. Even as we try to figure out what everything means in our world today and how we land on the end time spectrum and is the Lord coming back tomorrow and what's going on and what's happening and we get ourselves all tied up in knots about this, we're not thinking about the main thing. We're, our eyes have now subtly shifted away from Jesus Christ and his word onto speculations. So ask yourself, as you're listening to podcasts or to teachers or to media outlets, is this speculation? Is this distracting my mind and my heart away from the word of God and the solid foundation and truth that we can find in here. The trustworthy sayings of the words of the faith and of the good doctrine are what we are to be devoted to. Everything else over time can lead us away and eventually may even shipwreck our faith. So to be a good servant of Jesus Christ is to be devoted to his word, to putting the words of God before the congregation for the pastor to be trained in these words and to live according to these words, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Good doctrine gets a bad rap in our culture today. Statements like doctrine divides or I don't want to get bogged down with all the do dry doctrine. All I need to know is Jesus loves me. We don't need doctrine. We just need to love people. But God's word does not allow us to think this way. It is the good doctrine 
It is the good teaching because it comes from our good God. And it tells us about our good God. Doctrine reveals to us the goodness and greatness of God. This good doctrine actually tells us how Jesus loved us. This good doctrine tells us actually what love is. We wouldn't know what it was without the good doctrine. It tells us how to love people. And it is this good doctrine that calls us to follow Jesus who followed the good doctrine. Good doctrine, which is often what we call orthodoxy, is intended to lead to orthopraxy, how we live our life. They're intended to be followed. They're intended to be lived out in the day-to-day life. Training in godliness is knowing the words of faith, knowing the good doctrine, and then putting those words into practice in your everyday life. This is training in godliness. This is what Timothy is charged to do. He is personally to be trained for godliness as he goes about training his congregation for godliness. And there is a reward for training. Verse 8 goes on to say, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness, which is the result of this personal training, is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness requires training. It doesn't just happen. It is ongoing. It is the daily discipline of submitting ourselves repeatedly under the authority of Jesus Christ and his word, just like it would be for our physical training. It doesn't just happen by osmosis. We can't just think it and it is so. We are going to see in a minute that there is a cost to training for godliness. There is striving and there is toiling, but there is great reward. Paul uses as an example something that we can all relate to to help us to understand the importance and the value of training in godliness. Physical fitness. Now, whether you are into physical fitness or not, we all know the benefits that come from it. We know that there's value in it. Our bodies are a gift from God. Our physical bodies are good. And we are called to steward our bodies, to care for them, to train them, to discipline them, to exercise them, to eat in a way that is healthy. This has value, Paul says. He says it in the word of God. This does have value. But it only has some value value, he says. Here's the thing. Even if we perfectly trained our bodies and perfectly disciplined our bodies and never allowed anything toxic into our mouths, eventually these bodies of ours are withering away and going to die. Regardless of what we do, we will eventually grow weak, we will grow old, we will grow sick and die. Bodily training has some value, but it is a limited value. But spiritual fitness, spiritual training, has exponentially greater value. It's not just some value like physical training, and many of us are so dedicated to that. But spiritual training has value in every way. Why? Because it holds with it the promise of life. I think about how so often I pursue physical fitness for the hope of life. Ever since I had cancer three years ago, I have tried to watch every food that goes into my mouth, and I've tried to have physical fitness and taking all the supplements and doing all the things so that I can live, right? And so that I can be healthy. But here's the thing. This 
is where life is found. This is where life is found. It shows you how quickly we can be distracted and turned away from the true source of life, right? But good things, we can be easily distracted away from the true source of life. It is in the spiritual fitness training program that we find life. It holds promise for this present life, and it says it holds promise for the life that is to come. So how? How does training in God, for godliness hold promise for life? How does this work? Well, 2 Corinthians 2 kind of gives us a little bit of insight into this mystery. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul tells us that all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. The promise of life and life to the fullness, both here in this life and in the life to come, finds its yes in Jesus. Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God, being intimate in intimate relationship with God, this is where we find life. The fulfillment of the promise of life is in Jesus Christ. Therefore, training for godliness, if it holds the promise for life, is then in reality training in Jesus. It's being trained in him because Jesus is life. And it's in God's good providence that he orchestrated that all who come to Jesus by faith would be transformed into the image of Jesus, who is the mystery of godliness, little by little, inch by inch. There is no godliness outside of Jesus, outside of life in him, outside of faith in him, outside of submission to him. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 through 31 says, And because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. We become righteous as we are in Christ. We become righteous as we are being trained in the word of Scripture. As we are beholding Christ Jesus in the word of God, like we do in the study, we are being changed into his likeness, into his righteousness. It has value in every way because it matters in this life. It had value to Timothy as he lived and served in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. It had value in every way because it matters in this life to those of us who are in Christ Jesus today. It also has value in every way because it matters in the next life. In Jesus Christ and only in Jesus Christ is our promise of eternal life. There is no life outside of him, but in him is life here and now and to come. Jesus said to Martha in John chapter 11, verse 25, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life Whoever believes in me, listen to this, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's almost like we just step from this glory into the next glory, from one, from the presence of Jesus in this life to the presence of Jesus in the next. Because of Jesus, because we're in him, Believers actually, when they die, they don't really die. They just step into the next realm. Training for godliness has value for today and for the life to come. Sandwiched between the exponential value and the high cost that comes from training for godliness, we have verse 9. Look at verse 9. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The saying, literally translated the logos. The logos, the saying, the word can be trusted. The logos can be trusted and deserves your full acceptance. There are many words that cannot be trusted and should not be received and accepted in this way. 
But these words, these words that we see in Scripture, the words in Timothy, the words in the whole of Scripture, these words can be trusted. You can trust them. When the Word of God says that training for godliness holds the promise of life here and to come, you can trust that. And it's worthy of your full acceptance. They can be trusted because these words, the Logos, are from the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, because the saying is trustworthy, because the word of God is trustworthy and worthy of our full acceptance, to this end we toil and we strive. There is a cost to this. To toil means to work extremely hard incessantly, without interruption. So we get the sense that this is ongoing. This is not like something we can toil for a period of time and then we can coast the whole rest of the way. Striving is to struggle or fight vigorously, to make great efforts to achieve or obtain something, to devote serious effort or energy. There is toil, there is striving, both in growing in holiness and also within ministry context of the church. And it is ongoing. I've often thought as I've begun to age that, you know, if I just toil and strive, maybe when I get to my 80s, I can just coast on that for the rest of my life. And I'm beginning to realize the older that I get that that just is not true. That no matter how old we live, as long as we have breath in our bodies, as long as we have our awareness about us, that we are going to be toiling and striving in this pursuit of godliness. We never get to coast. Because we never coast forward, we always will coast backward. So there's toiling and there's striving, both in growing in holiness and in the ministry context. But notice that he uses the word we. To this end, we toil and strive. Paul is not saying to Timothy, you do this while I kind of just have my cakewalk. We do it together. Paul is toiling. Paul is striving along with Timothy. They are toiling and striving together. And so too for us today. We don't toil and strive alone. Praise God for that. Because if we did, we would be buried under it. But we toil and strive together in the household of God as a community. We encourage one another. We build each other up in the faith. We remind each other of why we're toiling and striving for the holiness without which no one will see God. But not only do we, you and I, toil and strive together, but God is the one who's toiling and striving and laboring in us to bring about the godliness that he desires for us. We labor, yes, we do. We strive, absolutely. It's a hard road, but we do this by the power of God in us. Philippians 2.13 says, for it is God who works in you. God is the one working you in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Colossians 1.29 brings us together beautifully. Paul said, To this end I also labor, striving with all, listen to this, his energy, working powerfully within me. We labor and we strive, but we do so with the energy of God's spirit working powerfully within us. It is God who is at work in us, bringing about the fruit of godliness. And this is also our motivation for training in godliness. Look at verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The living God, 
The motivation for our training for godliness is the living God. Our hope rests fully on him. He is the living God, the only living God. Unlike all the gods that we are that were prevalent in Ephesus who were dead gods, unable to save, unable to give life, unable to provide. They were nothing more than objects made with human hands. But God, the God of the Bible, is the living God. He is the living God who is not made with human hands, but who made our human hands. He is the living God who has made all things. He is the living God who is the sustainer of all things. He is the living God in whom is all the hope of the people of God for those who believe in him. And this living God, the text says, is Savior. He is the Savior. He is our Savior. And he's not the Savior just for the Jews. But he's also the Savior for the Gentiles. He's not just the Savior for men. He's also the Savior for women. He's not just the Savior for the rich. He's also the Savior for the poor. There is no one outside of God's reach of salvation. He is the Savior for all kinds of people. But, especially for those who believe, for those who put their faith and trust in him, They know him, not as a remote God that's far away in the distance. They know him personally and intimately as their savior. And this is the motivation for all who are in the household of God, for the pastors who lead the people, for the people of the congregation to have as their priority the ongoing pursuit of training for godliness, no matter what the cost. And part of this training is personal. It's done personally, individually. But then there's also the public aspect of it, the gathered assembly, the worship assembly, the time when the people of God gather together to worship the God who has saved them. What is to be the priority of the gathering? Once again, we see the priority is God's word. Let's look at our text in verse 11. It says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So once again, Paul is addressing Timothy and he's telling him, command and teach these things. He's supposed to speak words to the people of his congregation, commanding them these things, the truths of the word of God. But he's not just supposed to speak the words, he's supposed to live the words. He's, going to, he's supposed to teach by his example. Set an example before them in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, and in purity. Timothy's priority is proclaiming the word of God both in his teaching and in his life. In many ways, Timothy's training for godliness happens through his role as a pastor and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he is putting before his people the word of God, as he commands and teaches these things, these things first and foremost apply to his life. And as he teaches these things, the Lord Jesus is teaching him these things first. As Timothy undergoes his own training in godliness, he is being changed. He is personally undergoing transformation so that others will see his good doctrine lived out in life. Paul tells him to let no one despise you for your youth. Now, we don't know how old Timothy is, but apparently he was a little bit younger than some of the other elders of the the time. And because of his age he may have run into resistance from his congregation. They may not have respected him, thinking maybe he's too young. And so Paul is saying, let your life refute. Let your life be that so that no one can despise you for your youth. Let your speech, let your conduct His speech is to overflow out of a heart that is saturated in the word of God. His conduct is to be affected. His behavior, practice what you preach. 
in love and faith, both of these together. Love undergirds this whole letter that, that is being written to Timothy. Love is the motive for the letter. Love is the motive for the charge at the beginning of the letter we saw. Love is the motive for confrontation against false teachers. And love is what is to propel Timothy to strive and toil for godliness in his own life and in the lives of his people. And faith, in Galatians 5 or 6, we see faith and love are connected. That faith is expressed through love. Faith is made visible as we love one another well. And in purity, Timothy's teaching and his life is to be pure. And this is speaking of purity in every way, but especially in sexual purity. He is to maintain purity in his sexual life, honoring God's desire and design for sex in the context of marriage between one man and one woman for life. This is one context in how faith is made visible in love in the life of pastors. All of the toiling and striving is intended to produce a fruitfulness in the life of Timothy, in the character of Timothy that is going to be visible to his congregation and is as instructive to them as his words are. He continues on, verse 13, Until I come, Paul says, devote yourself, Timothy, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Until I come, devote yourself. To be devoted to something means to be focused on that particular thing almost exclusively. So what is he, Timothy, to be devoted to almost exclusively? To the word of God. Devotion to the public reading of scripture. Devotion to the exhortation or the preaching of the word. Devotion to the teaching of the word. These three are not separate entities, but are inextricably woven together. The word of God is to be the central focus of the gathered people of God. And how does Timothy and the pastors do this? Well, he tells him that to be devoted to the word of God, you will not be neglecting the gift that was given to you when the elders laid their hands on you. When, when Timothy received his ordination and the elders were laying their hands on him, whatever the words they said to him that we have not been privy to, the prayers that they said over him, but what was happening in that moment was Timothy was receiving through the Spirit of God by the laying of hands of these elders the gifts that he would need to fulfill the calling God had for him as a pastor, the gift of exhortation of the scriptures, of teaching the scriptures with authority. And for, his devo- for him to be devoted to the word of God is to not neglect this gift that had been given to him specifically for that purpose. He's also to be devoted to the word of God and the exhortation and the preaching and the teaching of it. He had to practice these things, doing it over and over and over again. Immersing himself in it. Getting that word in him. His personal life is to be devoted to the word of God as is the public corporate gathered assembly to be do- devoted to the word of God. And because of that devotion, the people will once again be able to see his progress, both in godliness and his spiritual life, because the word of God is what changes and transforms individuals into the image of Christ. But not only that, we get to see our pastor's progress in instruction, and in teaching. And I was really struck by that thought as I was reading the passage over the last couple of weeks and thinking about the fact that our pastors also are making progress. 
They're not men who've arrived at some level of spirituality. They're growing. They're growing in godliness like we are. They're growing in their abilities to teach and preach the word of God like we grow in our understanding. And just as we would want people to show us grace as we grow and make progress in our faith and in our understanding of how the word of God applies to our life, so also should we show grace to our pastors as they grow themselves in godliness. But if you have a pastor who's devoted to pursuing godliness personally, and he's devoted to the word of God in the, in the worship assembly, then you have a good pastor. And you should put yourself under his authority. Be devoted to the word of God. We don't have to be innovative and creative in our church services. God himself has laid out for us the priority of his word in the worship setting. It seems so often to me that what is intended to be the central focus of church on a Sunday morning or any time the people of God are gathered together, the word is often finding itself on the periphery of the service. And what finds itself in the center is our own innovations and creativity. The word is sufficient. It is sufficient. The word is living. I just cannot emphasize this enough. This word, this book, is the living word of God. And that means that this is the power. This is where the power is. God's word is the powerful word. It is God's word, not our words, that speaks worlds into existence. And it's through this word of God that God feeds his people. This is what sustains us in this life. And this is why Timothy is being called to persist in this, that he might save himself and his hearers. It is through this word, the Bible, that God calls people into his family, that God calls people into salvation. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, which is the good news, the gospel, that has been preached to you. The word of God is the means by which God is saving People, as the word is preached and the hearers hear, the Spirit of God opens their hearts so that they can understand and they believe on Jesus Christ and are saved. It is the word of God, which is the long-established means of grace that God has designed, the means that he is using for our good, for the salvation of our souls, and for our growing in godliness. And it's also the word of God the truth that it holds, that as the church holds the word of God, they stand as a buttress against all that is false. Look down at verse 16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is another priority of the pastor and the church, is to guard the teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself, on what you are teaching. Keep a close watch on whoever is teaching in the pulpit. Guard the pulpit and persist in this. Why? Because salvation is at stake. It is this word, when it is preached and taught rightly, that God is using to bring the message of salvation to the nations. Until I come, Paul says, devote yourself to the word of God. Immerse yourself in it. Practice it. This is your priority, Timothy. Preach the word and live the word. And to the believers in Ephesus, until I come, your priority is to be sitting under the preaching and teaching of the word of God. 
and to persist in this until Paul comes to continue in prioritizing the pursuit of godliness and devotion to the word. And this, ladies, is how God is constructing and building his household, his church, his bride, through their diligent and persistent devotion to the scripture throughout the ages and around the world. Jesus is transforming his church, his bride, into the glorious vision that we saw at the beginning of our time together through the washing of his word. And it is not Paul speaking from the words of Scripture. It is Jesus' voice speaking to his church through this word today. It is Jesus who is saying, Until I come, church, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Until I come, church, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Until I come, church, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching and persist in this. For in so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And the Spirit and the Bride says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. We give you thanks and praise, Lord, that your word shows us the glorious Bride of Christ in which we as the church are becoming through the washing of your word as we submit to your word. Lord, I pray that you would stir in our hearts a hunger for your word. I pray that we would be devoted to the word, that we would be a part of churches that are devoted to the word of God, to the faithful reading and preaching and teaching of your word, that we would be proclaimers of the word and we would live out the truths of your word. Lord, I pray that you would, your spirit would do this work in us. I ask this in the powerful and precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.